Welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I'm your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker, and we are glad to have you with us for our second season. This season is an exploration of the intersection of race and voting rights. And when looking at the different facets of this topic, and especially barriers that might prevent a person from exercising their right to vote, we realized that it was a pretty big topic to try and cover in one conversation. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at some of the systemic issues and barriers that might impact a person's ability to vote. We'll take a look at the more overt aspects of voter suppression in our next episode. And to help us do that, we are joined today by two guests whose work spans from education to advocacy on local, state, and national levels. Professor Irving Joyner is a professor of law at North Carolina Central University School of Law, where for 12 years he served as associate dean. Among the numerous courses he teaches are civil rights and race and the law. He has received a number of honors and awards for his work as a professor, a civil rights and criminal law litigator, and community and political activist. Professor Joyner is also a regular legal commentator for local, state, and national media, primarily in the areas of law, politics, civil rights, and racial justice. And he's the co-host of the highly acclaimed Legal Eagle Review radio show, which is dedicated to a discussion of current local and national legal issues and is heard each Sunday evening on WNCU 90.7 FM. Kevin Briggs is a research fellow with the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations, a ministry that represents the priorities of the Episcopal Church to the U.S. government in Washington, D.C., one of which is to challenge long-established policies that perpetuate systemic racism and injustice. Mr. Biggs is a graduate of Occidental College, where he studied politics and urban and environmental policy. In 2018, he worked as a field organizer for a congressional campaign in Minnesota, and his political interests include criminal justice reform, ending poverty, and urban policy. Welcome to Professor Joyner and Mr. Biggs. And from now on, we're going to drop those wonderful titles and we will refer to you as Irving and Kevin. So let's begin. Um, first, I'm going to start with you, Kevin, just for a moment. Why does a church need an office of government relations? And how does that help when you're discussing issues like uh, race and, and voting suppression and voting in general? Um, so the Office of Government Relations attempts to uh, represent the church's uh, policy positions in Washington, D.C., because uh, a lot of issues that uh, Christians prioritize um, can be better addressed by uh, the government. For example, um, a big pro policy priority for us is anti-poverty work and addressing hunger. And as much as uh, individual churches, um, charity work and feeding uh, the hungry is helpful, uh, nutrition programs like SNAP are way more equipped to feed the hungry across the country. 
Um, we follow policy directives put up forth at uh, general convention, voted on as resolutions, and also are directed by executive committee at, uh, by the executive committee of uh, executive council. Uh, racial reconciliation is a really big policy priority for the Office of Government Relations. And as we'll discuss, um, voting rights uh, is a very important uh, priority in that policy umbrella. Um, we want to make sure that uh, our priorities are heard by the United States government as we uh, wish that all Americans of every race are represented and, and dutifully served by the US government. Wonderful, thank you so much. Um, so let's, let's dive a little now into this, the topic of today, which is really around um, voting and, and systemic problems with that. So Irving, I'm gonna to turn to you as our legal scholar, and I'm gonna ask you to help us understand some of the socioeconomic factors that come into play as it relates to voting and especially in communities of color. Well, <clears throat> this uh, notion of voter suppression, voter opportunity, I think revolves around uh, the concept of uh, white superiority and whether uh, the majority in this uh, country uh, across the board is going to allow for broad participation by every segment of the community. Historically, that has not occurred. Uh, historically, there has been an effort to keep uh, racial minorities in a position of servitude, uh, a position that they are oppressed, which results in economic uh, decline or stagnation. Uh, within uh, those communities, such that you create, I guess, in a kind of a religious sense, uh, the least of these. And uh, in this uh, in this country, historically, we have had, uh, with respect to racial minorities, on the uh, socioeconomic level, uh, these uh, two classes of citizenship. Uh, there is the first class citizenship, which is reserved for whites. Uh, and the privilege and the privileges of being white then flow to them and it shows up in uh, economic ways. Material uh, acquisitions or material benefits that are afforded uh, to people are readily available uh, if you are a part of the uh, white community. If you are part of the of, of color uh, community, those benefits are not there. And there is uh, historically an unwillingness to share and to give to those marginalized communities the same opportunities uh, to uh, share in uh, those benefits. And it shows up with respect to employment, uh, housing, and all of the other things that make up life in general uh, for uh, people. And of course, that creates this notion of faith and hope. Uh, faith that the uh, system is going to be fair, hope that the system is going to be fair, thereby giving to people the impetus to uh, struggle to do better, uh, to see that at the end of the rainbow, there is a pot of gold if you work for it. Uh, that hope and faith is not there 
when people know that the system is constructed in a manner that no matter how much hope or faith you have, it is never going to uh, materialize in a, a material way. So they give up. They don't have hope. Their faith is gone or is shattered, and uh, they are not uh, eager uh, parts of the, uh, the process. So it's part of the um, so it's part of the the issue around um, trying to keep people from being able to vote. Is there a, an idea of killing that sense of faith and hope? Uh, killing that faith and hope and that participation. Let me just kind of deal with it this way. Uh, up until 1835, in this country, and that's kind of a little history piece. Uh, African-Americans, uh, Africans could vote, free Africans could vote. Uh, in North Carolina, free Africans could uh, vote. Uh, even during the uh, slave uh, in, in, uh, enslavement uh, period, uh, that vote was taken away, or that power to vote was taken away in 1835. Mm -hmm. And it was returned in 1868 with the end of the Civil War and the introduction of the Reconstruction government where there was a constitutional right inscribed within the uh, North Carolina Constitution for people to be able to, uh, to vote. And that right uh, carried us through uh, to 1898, uh, when there was the 1898 Wilmington uh, Massacre yeah. that took away uh, the right again for uh, African-Americans uh, to vote. Uh, so there's been this history ebb and flow uh, where the, the right to participate in the uh, democracy has been shattered or taken away or curtailed by the white majority that run the country. And the fight has always been to restore that and to regain that. And that's what led us up to uh, 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. So it's been a continuum uh, where the battle for voting rights and the right to participate in the democracy uh, has uh, been either allowed or not allowed. And uh, that's where your hope and faith come in. Gotcha. So Kevin, bringing you all, looking at the Office of Government Relations then, and you look at this sort of continuum that Irving speaks to um, in this era, when again, voting rights are being threatened, um, and in some ways, um, do you all view this as a systemic challenge or are you looking at other factors that contribute to um, the new laws that are being created? And of course, um, some of the um, destruction of the Voting Rights Act right through the Supreme Court from 2013. Yeah, I'd say we, we do look at it as a systemic issue. Um, a lot of election law is statewide. Um, we've seen since 2020, many states attempt to pass and, and some successfully to pass overtly suppressive voting rights law. Um, we, we focus on federal legislation in the OGR, um, but a lot of what we do is um, set to expand the ease of voting um, for everyone. And, and, and that includes um, one of our policies outlines, or one of the policies passed in the general convention outlines that uh, we want to advocate for uh, national legislation that expands early voting periods, uh, vote by mail options, um, 
registration options that can uh, lead up to election day. And, and a lot of these are aimed at uh, addressing uh, barriers that ex exist for everyone that makes voting harder, but, but can disproportionately affect um, communities of color, poorer Americans, and, and uh, Americans with disabilities. You know, all of these issues, um, I mean, all of all of these policies would uh, help everyone, but it, they also are, serve as uh, systemic barriers that disproportionately affect certain demographics. Mm -hmm. So I guess, Irving, how do we um, address this? I mean, do we, should we look at it as a state by state issue? Or like we've been talking about over the, oh, well, this last year, or maybe almost two years now, right? Like if you look at the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and all of that. So is this something that we should look at once again, trying to go back and ask Congress to address some of the, to address the Voting Rights Act that will eliminate systemic problems? Or will some of those systemic problems remain as long as we are establishing legislation state by state? Well, you know, the, the problem uh, is structural and structural in the sense that uh, the uh, composition of the United States mm -hmm. uh, is such that it, voting rights is a state by state issue. Yeah. Um, each state, and this is under this concept of states' right, uh, gives to its citizens the right to vote or each state can take away the right of each citizen uh, to uh, to vote, uh, Congress does not have uh, a legal right to control that. Uh, only as it relates to congressional or national elections, right. but the right to vote is uh, implicit or found in the state constitution. Mm -hmm. So you have to deal with it on a state by state basis with with respect to the right to vote. As it relates to the federal constitution and the Fifteenth uh, Amendment. It says no more that where there is the right to vote, that you cannot discriminate on the basis of race. It doesn't give anyone the right uh, to vote. So this is a state's rights issue. And it goes back to the battle that has uh, uh, engulfed this uh, country since its very founding. Uh, does the state have the power or does the federal government have the power? And the federal government is always seeking to uh, in, uh, in expand its power while the states are fighting to uh, expand its individual uh, power and voting just becomes one of the things that's caught up in that, uh, in that process. And since uh, really since uh, 2010, uh, the states have been uh, exercising its right to, uh, and this is after an, an expansion of the opportunities at the state level for people to register to vote, the states are now attempting to cut back on that uh, that those opportunities for people uh, to uh, to vote. So it's a state by state campaign that we have to look at. Unless Congress finds and the U.S. Supreme Court approves of the intervention of the uh, federal government over the voting system. And that's the big battle that's going on now, where you now have a conservative state's rights Supreme Court that is not going to allow Congress to exercise the control and authority over the states as it relates to those things that traditionally 
have been in the ambit of uh, states' rights and the powers of the state to control. And voting is just one of those. Wow. So if you look at a state like North Carolina, for instance, then um, what are some of the things that we can do um, either as the, the voting public, right, to try to protect the rights that we currently have? <laughs> so. and, you know, and, 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 and the answer to that is, is, is simple in a sense, but very complex. And that's to vote, is <laughs> right. to get out and vote. And to choose those individuals who are in the state legislature who support this notion of a participatory democracy where all people have equal rights and opportunities to uh, engage in this, uh, in this process. And, uh, but it's a very hard thing to do. If you remember, prior to really 1980, we voted one day out, out of the year on November, the second Tuesday in November. In November. Right? And everybody was crowding in. Uh, now we have early voting. I know in North Carolina, we have 18 days of early voting. That expands the opportunity for people now to get to the polls to cast their vote. That's a progressive notion that we were able to put into place beginning in the late 1980s, uh, 1990s, leading up to 2010. It was in 2010 that they began to try to cut back on those opportunities because those opportunities produced an, a, a tremendous increase in the number of African-Americans and people of color who were able to come out and vote, who were not able to come out and vote on that one day in, uh, in November. Uh, so the fight now is how do they cut back? and take away from those people who were able to benefit from those opportunities and to deny, deny them uh, the hope and faith that they have in the electoral system that it is going to even allow them to participate in choosing who their uh, representatives are. Wow. So for um, Kevin, for those of us who are, you know, a part of the Episcopal Church then, um, and as we look at these um, systemic problems that prohibit or inhibit people from being able to vote, how can we, um, how, what are some of the ways in which we can get involved in helping to um, forge the kind of legislation, at least whatever we can do on a national level to, to ensure that everybody who wants to vote can vote. Uh, thank you for asking me that. Um, I'd say there's a lot of ways that Episcopalians can get involved in the fight for voting rights. Um, on the national legislative perspective, um, the OGR does advocacy um, on voting rights legislation. We put out action alerts where Episcopalians can um, sign on and uh, contact their members of Congress uh, so to support, to urge them to support um, pieces of legislation in which we've identified uh, align with our policy positions. We have um, action alerts right now on the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act um, and the uh, For the People and Freedom to Vote Act as well. Um, and if there's church policy that you think could be improved, um, you can get involved in uh, the 
resolution process of proposing um, general convention resolutions to um, realign our policy and, and get involved as well going to general convention and supporting voting rights resolutions. Just recently at Baltimore uh, at, at uh, our 80th general convention, um, I know that there were several pieces uh, of, or there were several resolutions that passed uh, to strengthen our support for increasing uh, voting uh, rights and voting access. Uh, and then additionally, this, this isn't related to um, passing national legislation, but the Office of Government Relations has uh, an Episcopal Election Activator Program where you can get involved with our Officer of Church Relations, Alan Yarborough, and um, work in your diocese to increase um, voter participation. And, and that effort can... Um, take place in many ways. Um, there are some members focused on voter registration. There are some uh, focused on voter turnout and um, ed educating fellow parishioners and other people in the diocese. Um, really, the, the target is to get more people involved and make sure that Episcopalians are, are going to the polls. Can I um, talk a little bit now about voting by mail? Um, this is one of the ways in which we look to expand people's abilities to be able to vote. I know even in Texas, they even had drive-by uh, voting last time where you could actually literally 24 hours a day go and drop your ballot in a ballot box somewhere. Um, and so now they've looked to constrict that again. So fundamentally though, um, are there upsides and downsides to voting by mail or is this just another way of of uh, reducing the opportunities of people to be able to fairly exercise their their right to vote. Well, I think uh, you know this is a, uh, a progressive notion of voting uh, by mail, uh, being able to even drop off your ballot at the uh, polling uh, site. Uh, again, if you go back to uh, pre nineteen eighty, uh, you couldn't do that. Uh, you had to show up in person. Uh, to vote. So those people who were disabled and could not get to the poll for one reason or another, uh, they lost their right uh, to vote merely by the way that the system was uh, constructed. Uh, so the progressive notion of allowing people to vote uh, by mail uh, increased the franchise and the uh, ability of people to participate uh, in it. And then uh, we had uh, uh, in a couple of those years, uh, floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and things like that that occurred right at the uh, voting time. And that allowed those people not to be disenfranchised because of the weather conditions or other environmental impacts that they were encountering at that point. Uh, so the notion was that as you look at the numbers that uh, poor people, African-Americans, Latinos, and people of color, those who were uh, marginalized in society, avail themselves of these opportunities uh, to, uh, to vote and to uh, participate. And those people who were in power uh, saw that as an opportunity to uh, take away uh, that right and that ability of those, those populations uh, to uh, participate. In and, and that's one of the things that we are fighting uh, against. So you can always throw up a lot of uh, boogeymans and straw uh, figures uh, to uh, justify taking away the uh, opportunities, but democracy 
And uh, this notion of participatory democracy would command that you open up every avenue for citizens uh, to vote just to ensure that, uh, that they have uh, the uh, proper requirements as uh, constructed by their constitution. Hmm. So, um, and Kevin, if you look at it from um, the government relations side and, and the work that you're doing on the ground kind of work, um, what are some of the really negative impacts of prohibiting people from being able to do things? Yeah, I mean, there are many reasons why someone might find it difficult to vote on in person on election day, whether it's their work schedule, um, not every state. Uh, has laws that require employers to give uh, their employees time off to work on uh, or to vote on election day. And even some that do, uh, that time off is not paid. Uh, so the financial sacrifice um, that it would take to vote, it, it, a lot of people um, don't choose uh, to make that uh, sacrifice. And, and, and some, even who have the legal opportunity, could, could fear um, retaliation from their employer for taking time off uh, from work. Uh, another issue is, is transportation and getting to the polls. Um, uh, if someone doesn't work near where they live, if they commute long distances to work, that might put them far away from their polling place during uh, the hours in which it's open. Um, illness and, and disabilities, as Irving mentioned, um, can, can be barriers that al allow people to uh, conveniently vote on, in person on election day. And uh, opening up the option to vote by mail is, is critical to allow all of these people another option that's more convenient um, to make sure that uh, their voices heard in elections and, and that they're able to civically engage. Um, and the efforts to restrict them, um, I think are, are viewed as very concerning in our office. Um, we want to make sure that uh, as many people as possible are, are participating in elections. It's, um, how democracies function best is, is when um, the people's interests are represented. Re represented, And when there's turnout gaps, uh, either in race or by disability or age or socioeconomic status, um, what, what we'll see is um, certain groups getting a larger say in our democratic process. And I don't think any of us feel that um, one, or one demographic should have a, an outsized say in the political process. And, and unfortunately, that happens a lot now with um, voters on average being wider, wealthier, um, older. Uh, we want to make sure that everyone is uh, included in our de uh, democratic process. Mm. And Kathy, can I just you know just add add, add to what Kevin has said? The, the church has a vital interest in uh, promoting this notion of uh, voting. I mean, religion speaks to this notion of the wholeness of the uh, person, and uh, where the uh, government is restricting uh, the uh, participation of the uh, individual, that speaks to the wholeness of the of, of the person and the church. Uh, is uh, designed to uh, encourage uh, people to seek uh, the broadest them that uh, they can uh, be and uh, participating 
in the uh, civic affairs uh, is a part of that uh, of that mission. We have here in North Carolina, uh, for instance, this notion of souls to the poles, uh, where the church uh, helps to deal with the transportation uh, issue to getting people to the poll, but then also the group and congregational effort to ensure that uh, people can go safely uh, to the polls and that they are surrounded by members of the uh, community and members of the faith uh, that will uh, encourage them uh, to vote and show them that, uh, that there, there is a role for them in the uh, voting uh, process. All of this uh, is a part of this uh, expansiveness of the uh, opportunity uh, for the, for people to vote, and the church has a pivotal role. In addition to that, there is a, the necessity of countering this uh, white uh, Christian nationalism uh, that is uh, focused not on restricting the right to vote, but denying the right to vote to people who are not like them. Uh, and that's a very important uh, role for the church uh, to play in showing that uh, this white Christian nationalism is not the controlling factor uh, in this country, but uh, all people, uh, because the church speaks to all people and not those who are believers, but to uh, uh, encourage uh, the uh, faithful fulfillment of the uh, masses of, of people. So the church has a vital interest in this regard. So I, I know I jumped the gun on that, but I wanna just kind of follow up on Kevin's point. <laughs> well, I appreciate that because one of the fascinating things I thought is I listened to a lot of the conversations in the last year or so around um, restricting voters' rights has been the introduction so much of souls to the polls as one of the things that um, that many legislators were looking to, to, to definitely restrict, right? So if they could eliminate some of the early voting, a lot of it was around eliminating that Sunday of souls to the polls. And I was like, oh, they have just awakened and discovered that this is a real thing. And so <laughs> the question becomes, well, how can we cut that out? Um, and I, I do appreciate though, this conversation about how the church plays this pivotal role um, or should play a pivotal role um, in helping people to maintain their rights, the right to vote, and to keep the expansion opportunities available. So in terms of the messaging, what is the messaging that should be, because we know there's a lot of misinformation, right, that is around, uh, that surrounds voting and voting rights. And how does this in misinformation, first of all, impact people's desire then to go and vote and, or there, or, and how does it increase the anxiety level around participating in voting rights? And I'll start with you, Irving, and then go to Kevin. Okay, well, the, the misinformation is, is nothing new. Uh, it has always been there. Uh, and I remember back in the day, and this is not to, uh, to, to age myself, uh, but uh, there were uh, notices sent out through African-American communities that said that, uh, well, you vote on Wednesday rather than on Tuesday. So make sure that you line up and uh, you're at the voting place uh, bright and early on, on Wednesday morning when the uh, day of voting was really on Tuesday. Uh, where, or you go to this precinct rather than that precinct, or you don't find out information about the proper precinct for you to uh, vote in. So that has been a uh, historical reality uh, that we are dealing with now. 
Uh, now the uh, with uh, social media uh, and the expanded uh, communications uh, uh, tools that uh, out there, this misinformation has been uh, exaggerated tremendously. It has expanded mm -hmm. uh, beyond uh, measure. And it's important that there is some voices out there that counters and corrects this uh, misinformation that's able to get to people to help them to understand what are the facts and what are the procedures that they need to be engaged in and urging them to discount uh, those uh, negative messages that they see uh, in the media that would uh, encourage them not to participate. So this is uh, a big part of this uh, process. Wow. Um, Kevin, as one of the people doing looking at policy, um, I guess, how does mass communication in your mind um, really have a systemic effect on, on voting? Yeah, uh, I think the recent uh, explosion, I guess, of social media uh, comes with its costs and, and or costs and benefits. It can be utilized really well to spread helpful information, but just as easily um, disinformation and misinformation can be spread broadly, uh, quickly uh, to a uh, large audience. Uh, and there's not that um, sense of uh, editorial control that you would expect um, from your local newspaper to ensure that the information that you're seeing is um, vetted and, and truthful. Um, I, disinformation has been something that um, our office has been really concerned about, um, both in the, um, I mean, prior to coronavirus, we actually had um, put out a blog post on the Hill um, talking about the misinformation about vaccines. Um, that is often spread and used to discourage people from um, getting vaccinated. Uh, and, and similarly, um, disinformation and misinformation can be used as a uh, really effective tool in white nationalists or white supremacist and, and Christian nationalist movements. Um, uh, and um, we've also seen it used at, uh, in operations to uh, dissuade and um, uh, suppress voter turnout. Um, after the 2016 election, in fact, in the Senate Intelligence Committee investigation, uh, they found that uh, in Russian interference, uh, that no single group of Americans was targeted by information operatives more than African-Americans. Um, and it can be used uh, as a, uh, a tool to kind of stoke um, fear and um, doubts that cause people to be more hesitant to turn out on, on election day. And I think that teaching media literacy um, and getting people more aware of the threats that um, misinformation poses on social media is, is really important as we um, see it play a larger role in our lives. Right. So I, I think we're just about at the end of our time, but I think there are two final things I'd like to know. In your estimation, what are some of the tangible things that churches should, can and should be doing right now 
to provide educational literacy to all of our um, parishioners, all of our members, all of those who even just um, interact with the church to give them the best information about voting? Well, I think that uh, I, I always use this, uh, this notion of everyone has a responsibility to ensure that uh, those people that they are connected with will, uh, will go out and vote. And I call it 100% voting, starting with the family. And if every family guarantees that uh, every member in their family will vote, and then that every church ensures that every member of the congregation will register and vote, and that they will then go out into the community to ensure that every person in that community will register uh, and vote and make that a part of their outreach and church mission, uh, then that will do a lot uh, to uh, uh, increase the uh, participation of people in the democracy, but also to, uh, to spread uh, positive and truthful information uh, about the need to vote and to whom uh, their vote uh, should be cast for uh, in, the, uh, in, 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 in the process. So that is one of the things that I think that the church can do is to be active in ensuring that uh, their, their intimate connections and outside connections are fully engaged in this, uh, in this process such that uh, uh, information is being uh, given and that people are organized, mobilized, and educated about the uh, process. Mm. And Kevin, yes. I, I thought Irving put it beautifully, um, and I want to take this chance to shamelessly plug the wonderful work of my colleagues at the Office of Government Relations. Um, we've put together a Vote Faithfully toolkit, which is um, uh, been updated for the 2022 midterms that includes uh, a bunch of wonderful resources uh, about um, helping people get involved in elections, whether it's registration, understanding their uh, local uh, election laws, and, and how to uh, stay the most up to date on what they'll be voting on in the upcoming midterms, um, and how to help others in their community uh, make sure that they are participating as well. Um, this is, you know, available in our civic engagement. Uh, web page uh, online on for the Office of Government Relations. Um, and uh, is a wonderful resource for anyone looking to get involved. Uh, you know, starting with the family is, is a great start. Um, but if you're looking to involve people in your parish, making sure that they're active, talking about uh, making sure that they're getting the souls to the polls, um, Vote Faithfully Toolkit, um, I think will help a lot of people who are wondering maybe where do I start? That's fantastic. I want to um, thank both of you so very much for being our guests today. So I wanna say again to Professor Irving Joyner and to Kevin Briggs, thank you very much for this very um, interesting conversation. I hope it's a dialogue. I know that it's a dialogue that we're gonna continue this season as we continue to examine um, race and voting. Um, but I just really appreciate um, the conversation that uh, you all have with us. And thank you for being our guest today. Okay, thank you for having us.
Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for being with us today on Roundtables on Race. And we look forward to having you with us next time.